you know, I, I dream of uh, a generation returning to the sort of slower conventions of, you know, non-simultaneous messaging on message boards. I think there's something really romantic about that. I dream of a world where, you know, people send each other love notes via fax machines. I mean, who knows? I think there's a lot, there's a lot of like latent affordances still left in some of these older technologies that we haven't fully explored because we so quickly and, and so easily get seduced by the newest thing. Hello and welcome to the Community Podcast by CoMatter, the coolest, greatest, and really interesting podcast that explores how people connect, share, and create in today's hyperspeed world. My name is Severin Matusek. This is episode 15, and today's guest on the show is Claire L. Evans. Claire is a writer and musician based in Los Angeles. We first met in Copenhagen last year, and I was immediately intrigued about the stories she shared from her book, Broadband. Broadband was released last year and tells the untold story of the women who made the internet. The women who created digital bulletin boards in the 70s to better organize the social service structure in San Francisco, for example. Or women like Stacey Horn, who has built Echo, an early 90s social network that she ran out of her apartment in New York City. So when Claire presented some of these stories, I thought, hey, these women have really done the groundwork of how the internet works today, especially when it comes to how we use the web in a social way to connect with each other. Isn't there a lot to learn for how we use the internet today? Yeah. Turns out there is, and there's no one better to talk about it than Claire. So the other day, Claire and I hopped on a transcontinental call between Berlin and Los Angeles to talk about the women who made the internet and what they can teach us about the world today. By the way, Claire was so kind to record her end of the line with a high-end microphone in a crystal clear setting, while I forgot to turn on my microphone. So I'm sorry for the echo. It's best to ignore what I say and just listen to Claire. Now here's the community podcast with Claire L. Evans, writer, musician, and author of Band. I love how your book basically tells the story of yourself as you meet these women um, mm -hmm. who have shaped the internet over the last 50 years and 300 years. How was the research for the book? How did you meet these women? How did you travel across the country? How were those meetings? How, how did it all go? Oh, it was lovely. I mean, writing a book is, I always say this, but it's the ultimate life hack because like being a journalist, it allows you access to people that might not otherwise give you access to their stories and their lives. If you email someone and say, I'm interested in your contributions to the history of computing, can I please come to your house and chat with you? I mean, in my experience, nobody said no. Um, I think largely because a lot of these women uh, have been waiting for that email to arrive and perhaps haven't um, had been waiting for a very long time. So in I was lucky enough that everyone that I reached out to cold email wise, and I'm good at a cold email, it's, it's important to be good at a cold email. Um, they all said yes. And, you know, depending on where they were, I wasn't able to visit physically with everybody, but I was able to spend FaceTime with everybody at least. And the people that I did get to visit in their homes you know, what a joy. There's nothing better than sitting in someone's home and having them tell you about about their lives and showing you objects of, that are meaningful to them and um, being surprised and delighted when you understand their references to the things that they're passionate about. It was it was a wonderful adventure for me. I felt like, I don't know, like a, like a student on some kind of religious pilgrimage visiting with all my elders. I mean, because my book is about women and ostensibly older women, of course, who contributed to the history of computing. So You know, I spent two years talking to women in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s about their experiences. And it's a really powerful thing because it helps you to realize or helped me to realize, you know, how far we've come and how much has changed both culturally and socially and, and with, with technology. 
and yeah, it was marvelous. And, you know, now that the book is out, a lot of these women are still in my life because I try whenever possible to bring them along whenever I do book events. So I, you know, like if someone lives in San Francisco or New York and I'm doing a book event in one of those cities, I ask them if they'll join me. And so we have this kind of continuing relationship. And I, I feel really pleased that I've kind of got this Rolodex full of you know, fantastic older women that I can go to, like all my aunties and my grandmothers, uh, to give me wisdom whenever I need it. I guess that, you know, most authors who wrote books, you know, carry the idea for these books, sometimes years or even decades with them. Mm -hmm. And I wondered, what was the decisive moment for you to write that book and go and talk to these women, write those cold emails and say, I'm going to write this book now? You know, a lot of people have asked me that and there's not a great story really I mean I know I always knew that if I was to write a book it would probably be about the internet in some capacity because it's probably the thing that I am the most passionate about and know the most about and have the most you know lived experience in or one of the things that I I'm most passionate about and you know I really grew up as a writer on the computer I learned to write on the computer uh, every generation has a different writing technology that defines the way that they express themselves. It's different to write on a typewriter. It's different to write longhand. It's different to write on a computer. And I grew up in the word processing generation. And, you know, that had a huge impact on the way I express myself. And I came of age as a journalist and as a writer for the public in the golden age of blogs when people wrote freely and for free <laughs> um, all over the internet. And I think it was a really wonderful time for young writers like myself to develop their voices, find an audience, um, work through lots of ideas before um, before launching themselves into professional careers as writers. So I always had this connection to the internet as a writer that I felt like if I was going to write about something meaningful to me, it really had to be the internet. And it wasn't really until I put, you know, when I realized that there was a book to be written about women, that there that there wasn't really a book in that space that did, told the stories that I wanted to tell. Um, it was just a done deal when I had that realization, you know, that that the more I investigated the history of women in computing, just as an enthusiast of internet history, um, the more I realized that there was a possibility for a book like this to exist. And I thought, well, it's got to be me, you know? I've always had this theory that if you think of something, you have to do it. Mostly, if you think of something nice, you have to do it. You know, if you're out in the world and you see something that a friend of yours would like, if the thought just crosses your mind for one second, my friend would like this, you just have to do the nice thing. You'd have to. It's the rule. And... Um, you know, not to say that this book is some kind of nice gift to the world, but the thought crossed my mind and I thought, well, I thought of it. I'm the one who thought of it. I'm, I'm the one in the position to do it. I have to do it. It has to be done. You know, you mentioned that you are a child of the internet, basically, as probably most of our listeners are and me, myself, I am. Um, how do you think the perspective is different of someone like you, of the generation who grew up with the internet, who grew up with blogs, who launched a professional career in that space? How is that perspective different from someone of an older generation of, of, for writing that book? Why is it important to you to write that book right now? Well, I mean, we're in this really strange period. The internet develops quickly, as we know, and evolves and changes so quickly and so completely that sometimes it can feel like it's completely erased itself culturally and written new conventions every day. And it's easy to forget how different the internet once was. Um, and it's difficult to identify when the major changes happened because we're too much in it. You know, we're like a frog in a boiling pot of water. So, you know, looking back at the early Internet, the Internet that I grew up using, um, really spending time with it allows allowed me anyway to 
kind of internalize how significant the changes have been and how much of an impact it has had on our culture uh, in such a way that I thought it was it was important to share. I mean, that being said, it's it's changed in many ways in many different generations. And the book covers, you know, nearly 200 years of history. It predates the Internet. So there's lots of stuff that has happened in between. But I think, you know, it felt important to me to get the story down before the paint proverbially dried. You know, a lot of these women are older now, you know, and they're not going to be with us forever. The first generation of computing pioneers, you know, the World War II era generation of coders, they're no, mostly no longer with us. And so, you know, it's it's crucial to get their stories down because we have this sort of established cultural history of the development of technology, of the development of Silicon Valley that has been iterated and reiterated through, you know, hist historical books, but also, you know, television, pop culture, films, media, magazine articles, you know, we have an idea of what we think this history is. And it's, it's very tempting to just assume that that's all there is to it. But of course, there is so much more, there's always so much more. And it felt essential to me to get that the all the more <laughs> to tease out some of the more before it was lost before it was too late to get the first person stories and so you know um that that really mattered to me and you know i like i feel like not a week goes by that someone doesn't send me some obituary from the new york times of some important female computing pioneer that i missed you know because there's just so many of them and and that generation is aging is aging so it's it's really about timeliness i suppose and but yeah, I mean, the, you know, you're thinking about the early, early internet. I, you know, in the early days when the internet was was small enough and new enough to feel like something, you know, other, something separate from human society, a place where we could start anew and build a new civilization. I mean, all, a lot of these early cyber cultural thinkers imagined that we'd be entering into a, a newly democratic realm. I mean, you think about the late John Perry Barlow, who wrote about, you know, the internet as being a civilization of the mind in cyberspace it seems so naive to us now and, and a lot of of the first women to come online the early feminists you know believed that the internet was going to be a f inherently feminist space that was that was free from all the constraints of, of gender and class and ability and, and race and all the things that hold us back in discourse and of course you know what, what happened to something quite different we i'm sure you've talked about it on this podcast before i mean we brought everything with us into this new domain the, this thing that we thought would be utopia we we arrived in utopia with all of our baggage and we turned it into you know every to the, into the world around us and and so now the problems of the network are the problems of the world and, and vice versa so you know i think w we're still very much entranced by this romantic vision of that first generation online and i think there's this continuing somewhat popular misconception of the internet as being inherently a kind of community technology but and, and I think a lot of, you know, all these social media platforms have kind of grafted themselves onto that assumption uh, and, and, and played up that language to seduce us into a state of complacency about some of the more egregious things that it imposes upon us and, um, and, and, and blinds us to their true natures as being primarily consumption machines. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's important to kind of to look at all of those movements and identify them so that we, we know where we are now. There was one story in your book that I found particularly interesting from that community perspective, which is the story in the 70s of Resource One. Yeah. Um, this community commu computer center in, in San Francisco. Can you tell us what Resource One was and why it matters today? Well, Resource One was a commune. I mean, like a lot of communes in San Francisco, I think 
you know, you hear a lot about the kind of the back to the land movement of the 1970s of people going off and starting communes in the country. But there were also people starting communes in the city. And, and Resource One was essentially like a back to the land commune, but in the middle of San Francisco. So it was a group of hippies that took over a warehouse south of Market, uh, a former candy factory, I believe, and gutted it and built a, basically a village inside of it and lived inside of it as communards, sharing everything, sharing resources. And among those resources that they shared was a computer, a computer room. Um, they had a, a, a significant mainframe computer that they had kind of, it was sort of a long story, but one of the women working there, living there, um, had essentially negotiated uh, to take this this majorly powerful mainframe computer off the hands of a leasing company for insurance reasons, tax reasons. Um, and so they had this like DIY clean room made out of plexiglass and all of these hippies who didn't really know that much about computing were teaching themselves how to run and maintain this massive computer and use it or apply it to some purpose that might be useful for the counterculture. You know, it's this idea of the computer for the people. Uh, and it it was a significant computer itself. I mean, it was a, the machine itself had been one of the earliest nodes of the internet at Stanford um, in the late 60s. And it was, I think it, I mean, there's some scholarship that suggests that it was Douglas Engelbart's computer. Anyway, regardless of yeah. that kind of uh, in the weeds uh, computer history arcana, they maintained this computer system. And there were a number of people that worked on it um, and did interesting things with it. There was a group that founded essentially one of the earliest, you know, I guess, pseudo online communities, uh, a system called community memory, which was essentially a like a classic bulletin board system, like the kind of thing you would see in the back of a health food store or a record shop, uh, you know, with messages tacked up on the cork board. It was a digital version of that. So they had a couple of terminals around the Bay Area where people could post want ads and classifieds and things that they needed and resources they had to share. And it was all kept as a database on the resource one computer. Um, but there was also a group of women who worked using this computer to create a directory of social resources for social workers in the Bay Area, which has gotten much less attention historically because it was slightly more invisible uh, usage of the computer. It wasn't part of the kind of mythos of long-haired hippie nerds in San Francisco, you know, taking over the counterculture with digital innovation. It was something that was much more practical and sensible and community oriented in the sense that it actually served people that weren't, um, you know, didn't have the privilege of access to a machine like that. It served people who needed access to social services in the Bay Area. And they maintained this really quite extensive database of resources for social workers that they printed out on paper mm -hmm. and mailed to all these, um, you know, homeless shelters and domestic violence shelters and social workers offices. Um, so it was kind of this printed out database that was that was um, like an invisible <laughs> computing database that was that was yeah. really significant um, and and changed the course of many people's lives in San Francisco. And, and you know, from this example, which was I think in 1975, um, where basically this group of people had this supercomputer in the commune and started thinking about how can how can this computer serve the community in our city, in our country, mm -hmm. in a time where there were no personal computers at people's homes. Um, fast forward from 1975 to maybe 1985 or 1995, that basically set the frame framework for a lot of interactions we had online in the 80s and 90s already, right? Mm -hmm. How do you think the decisions that were made back then have paved the way to to all the social networks all the forums all the all the different ways we connect to each other online today mm, that's an interesting question i mean i think in the early days 
a lot of the conventions of social networking were predicated on, you know, uh, understandable metaphors for people that were new to computing. So this idea of the bulletin board was something that was, you know, comprehensible. It's a sort of skeuomorph, I suppose. It's uh, a kind of metaphor that we can bring with us to the computer that allows us to understand what we're doing with this new technology. So the bulletin board metaphor held sway for a really long time and was a really useful and powerful metaphor, especially when you're talking about sort mm -hmm. of non-simultaneous communication, uh, which was really what bulletin boards were all about. And, you know, I'm very fascinated by BBS systems. I think, you know, it's sort of a lost art and something that I think there's still space to consider folding into the way that we use online services now. But there, there were also lots of other ways and lots of other conventions for relating to one another online. You know, there was newsletters and news groups. There was multi-user domains, you know, sort of simultaneous uh, spaces that were kind of coding environments slash chat rooms slash, you know, fantasy role-playing games writ large. A really interesting way of relating to people. Much more, a metaphor that was less based on, you know, pinned messages and much more on the sort of consensual collaborative hallucination of a physical space lots of uh people thinking about themselves as being you know in houses or in b mansions or palaces or realms uh, places that were more vast than the smaller affordances of something like a bbs uh, how that has all folded into what we do on social media now it's, it's very difficult to see the through line for me i mean there's still you know here's an interesting example okay so there's a group of people that I profile in the book who were members of a bulletin board system called Echo in New York in the 1990s, just, you know, an early 90s, um, you know, message board, social media network system. Um, a lot of them now are still on Echo using this service, which is, you know, as lo-fi as you can possibly imagine. It's a, it's, you know, it's a BBS service that you access via Telnet. You know, you dial into someone else's computer and you post messages. It's all in Unix. But they also, you know, they're not Luddites. I mean, they're also elsewhere online. They have Twitter accounts. They're on Facebook. Uh, and if you look at the people that were lifelong Echo users and the way that they use Facebook, they use Facebook like a message board. They're, like, using it wrong. <laughs> you look at them, they have these long conversations in the comment threads of each other's posts, you know, with lots of back and forth. And, you know, of course, it's ostensibly built to do that, but I, I never see anyone of my generation doing that. You know, people aren't chatting to one another really in that same way. They're not using the Facebook comment thread as essentially a de facto message board, coming back and posting updates to that comment thread uh, and, and riffing and asking, making jokes and going on and on. Uh, so you can kind of see how the conventions, are, you know, the, the affordances are there, but, you, but, but people just don't use it that way because the algorithm is much more interested in sort of shuffling us through a bunch of content and mining as much information from us as possible in order to, you know, advertise our communities back to ourselves. But ultimately, I mean, I think the, the major change between the social networks of yore and the social networks of today is, is just capitalism. You know, it's just money. Be nobody who was running a BBS system in the 80s or in the 70s uh, was doing it for the money, really. I mean, I'm sure there were yeah. some small-time tycoons that, you know, system operators that had, you know, dial-in services that were very popular, but no one was getting rich. It wasn't, no one was, no one was selling ads, <laughs> ad data about their users. They were trying to create uh, the best, social environment possible because people paid by the hour you know they paid to dial in they pay they paid like as like the way you pay for a f telephone call so um keeping an uh, creating an environment that was uh exciting interesting dynamic fun full of interesting people and good conversation was the one way to make money 
uh, creating a place that people wanted to come back to, that felt like their home, that felt like their community, that they had some attachment to. Um, that was how you made money at all, if at all, in the early social media days. Whereas now it's, yes, it's about keeping people coming back, but it's also about, you know, leeching a lot of other information off the top of them as Do well. Do you think everything is bad about the internet landscape today? <laughs> is it all capitalism or are no. there escape, fire escapes basically that we can take? I think there's always something good somewhere. You know, I mean, I think I think fundamentally companies, you know, the, the Facebooks and the Twitters and the Instagrams and and the Googles of this world, you know, one one has to mistrust healthily um, their motivations for providing services for us, or at least be mindful of of what they are. And I'm, you know, I I don't think it's sensible to 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 be a Facebook user and to complain about Facebook simultaneously because you know you know what you're you should know what you're getting into and you should know that. If you're getting something for free, you're the product, and and that's that's all well and good. But uh, I think wherever you can, owning your own platform is the way to go. You know, or participating in smaller, more community-minded platforms uh, is crucial. And uh, and I don't know. I mean, finding ways to connect the offline with the online as much as possible. There's um an organization or there's an art space here in Los Angeles called Naval that I really like and, and they, they just started doing this sort of um, PDF library concept where people come to the gallery with, you know, USB keys with like great, great and useful PDFs, whatever that may mean, you know, whatever resources they think are important that they contribute to this uh, networked but offline library. So you can go and, you know, you can mm -hmm. only go physically and pick up PDFs. So it's sort of like, I like these sort of hybrids where we, Maybe we cull yeah. information that we think is meaningful from the web and then we share it with each other in IRL space. Or, you know, we build smaller platforms which allow us to have, you know, more nuanced and specific conversations that aren't necessarily meant to be, um, you know, expanded to the scale of billions. I think that's another thing, you know, beyond money that has changed the nature of social, uh, you know, community online is just is scale. You know, you can't, it's very difficult to build a community that serves it's public when you're talking about a public in the billions back in the days of the bulletin board systems, you know, we're talking about uh, creating a community that serves its community in, in that, and that number is in the hundreds, maybe the, maybe the thousands. Um, it's a totally different proposition. There are totally different possibilities because when a community is small enough, you know, a handful of moderators who are part of that community can, can, can maintain it well and adequately. Whereas when you're operating at a scale, you know, the scale of something like Facebook, you just, yeah. you have to outsource all that work. And that, that is what disenfranchises people and alienates people from, from each other. Are we coming to this realization that this has become much bigger than we thought? This has oh, yeah. much bigger influence than we thought it would have 10 or 20 yeah. years ago. Of course. Of course. Yeah. I mean, you talk to people that were involved in development of the ARPANET, you know, in the 1970s, who were really just thinking about how to connect computers, large mainframe computers together so that scientists and computer scientists and researchers could have access to computing resources at a distance, you know, so that they didn't have to put their magnetic tapes and their punch cards in a suitcase and fly to Berkeley to use a computer. That's that's all they were thinking about trying to do is uh, making it easier to do research. Uh, I don't know. I mean, they they to them to them the internet today is like a completely different animal. It's something that they didn't anticipate. It's something they kind of don't understand. I mean, one of the women I profile in my book, Elizabeth Feinler, Jake Feinler, who was um sort of an information scientist at the heart of uh, the early ARPANET. You know, she, when I talked to her about the modern day internet, what do you use? You know, it's she doesn't she doesn't know it. You know, she's it's a stranger to her. 
even though she was there at the very beginning. The principles perhaps are the same. And I think she understood early because she was being flooded by email from, from the very beginning. But uh, the sort of scale of it and, and the interrelation of commercial and non-commercial interests, the, 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 the massive, uh, constant growing uh, contributions of, of so many millions of people is, is an un- unanticipated thing. Um, it is, it's like a run, a runaway effect. It's, it's fascinating, I think, to them. Um, but yeah, uh, there are many different ages of the internet and, and, you know, it's not to say that, it's not to say that any action made was in, in, in the early days, uh, was, an, I don't think anybody would have anticipated where we are today. I slightly said this before, but my main realization from reading your book is of course, I learned a lot about how women played a role in, in building the internet and building the technologies we use today, but also mm-hmm. understanding that the common story of technology and the internet is very one-sidedly told today of mm-hmm. probably white men in Silicon Valley reinventing the world and building some sort of utopia that they think is right, but that often many different actors and many different perspectives are part of that or have played a role that are often not being told. So I'm, I would also be looking forward to, for example, a non-white history of the internet, for example, because oh, yeah. I think there's a lot, a lot of perspectives that we don't even know about that would be very interesting to uh, to understand. Of course, I mean there are there are an infinite number of perspectives. I mean I think generally speaking, if you think there may have been someone there that wasn't just a white dude, mm. you're in in any domain and discipline, you're probably right. You know, like. I go and give talks about this book and afterwards people raise their hands and say, oh, it's interesting that this is kind of like the development of video art or, you know, Western medicine or, you know, museum studies or whatever the audience is. And, you know, it's the, the same stories, the same patterns are at play in, every, in everything. And I think once you kind of unlock that realization, you know, the world is, the world changes its, quali- its quality quite significantly and you realize... Uh, you know, we can never probably fully 100% get a grasp on all of the stories that we missed because history has a tendency to, you know, slip out of our hands if we're not paying close enough attention. But the more we can aggressively grab onto kind of alternative narratives, um, the more we learn about the true nature of history, the true nature of the technologies that we've inherited from history, and the true nature of our world, because all of these tendencies and forces at play are no different now than they were in the 1970s or in the Victorian age, for that matter. Um, There's always the same stuff. And I think, you know, some people have sort of maybe criticized my book for not going deep enough into sort of the causes of of why the internet is as patriarchal or as it is or whatever. But I've always seen, it's always seemed to me like those questions of, of why are so self-evident, you know, so obvious, so, so much around us every day that it doesn't seem to me to be worth explaining. <laughs> like, it's like, yeah, every woman reading this book is going to be like, yeah, obviously, you know, oh, I'm not, maybe they'll be, you know, happy to meet these characters, but they will not be surprised to know that these characters have been ignored historically. Um, because it's just the same, it's just the same shit over and over again. So I'm much more interested in highlighting individual stories um, and giving them the space that they deserve rather than going into sort of the polemic of why um, these stories have been ignored, because that seems obvious to me. As you said, 
the internet is not this second life digital utopia where anything is possible, but exactly the same patterns that we we basically that are challenging in our real world are challenging in in the internet. You know, you said the gatekeepers still hold tightly to the keys, which I think is very true. Mm-hmm. So with that in mind, what are you excited about of the internet in the future <laughs> on the next five years? God, um, there's a lot of things to be scared about, a lot of things to be excited about. I think... I think there's sort of a sort of generational awakening to the fact that these sort of social media giants that emerged out of our upbringing um, or maybe do not have our best interests at hand, that in of itself is is a bit is scary. But I also think that with that understanding comes the possibility of new things. And so I am excited. I feel like I'm seeing more people kind of branching off and building their own stuff. Um, building their own mini communities, whatever that may be. I'm a big user of Arena, for example. I don't know if you're hip. No, hip what to, is Arena? You know, like communities. Oh, Arena is like a sort of. Uh, I don't know. It's almost like the dream of the hyper of hypertext uh, come to fruition. It's there's like this very um, high signal, zero noise, m- micro social media network where people build um, kind of like hypertextual channels and associations between images and ideas so you know you can build a channel about i don't know um you know feminist computer history for example and you can pull in lots of different images and and references pdfs which i think are the ultimate you know dissemination of information vector uh videos clips whatever media you want you can connect them to each other and other people with those interests can connect various nodes uh what are called blocks from your channel to other channels so it's sort of building this web of of knowledge but it's you know there's no like likes or messaging yeah. it's it's a social network in the sense that you connect with other people's ideas but you're not um trying to like get famous or something uh if it's it feels to me kind of like the you know those the glory days of sort of mid-aughts um like internet surfing clubs and you know, the kind of like that sort of net art culture thing of digging through the internet for interesting stuff and sharing it with each other it's something very kind of organic about it um, things like that, you know, I, or here in Los Angeles, I'm, my partner and I founded an an iPhone app that's essentially like a um, Los Angeles events and arts cultural resource calendar thing that tells you interesting things to do in Los Angeles every day. And we run it like a magazine, but it's distributed like an app and we own the platform and we can distribute, you know, information about arts and music and stuff that we love in our city directly to other people in our city without the mediation of advertisement, without um, any metrics. You know, we're, not, we're just like, we're share, we, we share information with each other freely. Yeah. And that's, to me, the ultimate goal of the internet. And I think if we can understand how to build platforms which allow us to do the things that the first generation online dreamt that we would do, perhaps in a different form than they had imagined it, but... Uh, there are still lots of incredible affordances for community. Uh, I just think it's always better when we are able to take control of our own place, our own place. I mean, I think just going back briefly to the early days of of BBSs and stuff, I mean, looking at um, the way that early communities online in the the 80s and 90s sort of negotiated the rules and the conventions of their communities, the way that they – determined what was okay and what was not not okay, what kind of speech was okay, what kind of speech wasn't okay, um, how they would behave with one another. There's something so magnificently organic and interesting about that. And it's sometimes very messy because people are constantly negotiating and renegotiating 
what the rules are. But from that negotiation and often conflict emerges a real sense of public life, of, of collective identity through all the specific, you know, conventions of language and, and, and social interaction that develop over time in any group, uh, from a small group of friends to a larger community. And, you know, all of the early virtual communities struggled with all those questions of self-governance and who was in charge and what was okay. But at the same time, that's what that's part of what it is to make a place or to build a community. It's what makes it real. Um, so I think as long as we can build systems and platforms which allow us to, you know, share those valuable things with one another and earnestly negotiate the terms of our own boundaries and our own conventions and our own place, then we're in, we're, we'll be okay. Uh, I just think we can't, we can't trust others to do that for us. Mm -hmm. So do you think, uh, to summarize your, what you just said, do you think it's a little bit trying to go back to the roots of what we've built and understanding these dynamics and yeah. trying to declutter it from yeah. all the capitalistic mechanisms that have overtaken it is that is that what a future yes. might be i think so yeah i mean i think it's the great thing about history is that it shows us a great range of approaches and strategies for dealing with problems and uh addressing possibilities in in society right so we can pick and choose from history we can look at what was interesting about bulletin board systems what was interesting about multi-user domains what was interesting about the early days of blogging self-hosted and otherwise what is interesting about you know, all of these different ways that we have devised to connect with each other online. Um, you know, I, I dream of uh, a generation returning to the sort of slower conventions of, you know, non-simultaneous messaging on message boards. I think there's something really romantic about that. I dream of a world where, you know, people send each other love notes via fax machines i mean who knows i think there's a lot there's a lot of like latent affordances still left in some of these older technologies that we haven't fully explored because we so quickly and, and so easily get seduced by the newest thing but i don't know there's lots of there's lots of great there's lots of great things to borrow from and and to look at and i hope if nothing else my book provides people with a glimpse into not just the way things used to be but the way things could could continue to be if we sort of internalize some of the core values of the earlier generation online. Well, I think that's the perfect way to end the conversation. Thank you so much. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. This has been wonderful. Thank you, Claire, for being a guest on the show. And thank you to you, our listeners, for listening in to the whole conversation. I can really, 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 really recommend you to read Broadband. I read it in a hospital bed last year when my daughter was born and thought it was a good way to welcome the next generation of women to the internet. But you can also read it whoever you are and whatever you do right now. Just go to clairelevans.com to find out more and buy it. My name is Severin, and you can find me at comatter.com, a platform that explores what makes communities thrive.